Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of If Women Were Meant to Fly, The Sky Would Be Pink, Episode 4, Alive and Kicking. I'm Enid O'Turn. In this episode, I learn the outcome of the Twin Otter crash in Abuja and why it happened. New customers come on board as we launch our new services, and our new charter jet finally arrives in Lagos. Let me just say, first off, that it's great to be back. It has been almost two months since my last episode. Work and personal commitments have kept me busy. It was also a time for some reflection. Looking back on your past is an interesting but sometimes complex task. I think I almost overwhelmed myself with the content of my aviation career, as well as reliving the highs and lows of a life past. But no matter. I am back with the next instalment. Whenever I witnessed or heard of accidents during my flying career, it hit deep, whether I knew the crew or not. In those days, aviation was a small, tight-knit community, and the chances were that you knew someone who had been involved. In some ways, it seemed as though we lived in a bubble. The days that followed the Twin Otter accident in Abuja were difficult and soul-searching. We had lost a very experienced training captain, a young co-pilot in hospital fighting for his life, and several traumatised passengers who were lucky to escape with their lives. As fellow Twin Otter pilots, we needed to know what had gone wrong. Having been there when the accident happened, I had started to field meetings with fellow crew members in a bid for answers. It would be several months before we found out the truth. The fault lay with the inaccurate and uncalibrated instrument landing system at the airport. The system had been scheduled for calibration and not completed, but instead of taking it offline, it continued in service, and as a result was unreliable. Whilst following the guidance provided during the storm, it created a ghost indication which was lower than it should have been, and took the aircraft into the ground, in poor visibility. It was as shocking as it sounded, and put the whole aviation community on edge. We already knew that the maintenance and support for navigational aids in the country was poor and subpar. As the chief pilot of Pan-African Airlines, it fell to me to make sure that I kept the crew under my watch safe and that I engaged with our aviation authorities with input to improve our ground systems and structure. In those early years, our safety rating was very poor and was understandably criticised for lack of funding and development. We were in the early stages of GPS systems, something we take for granted these days in our everyday lives, but which in those days was a luxury. I still used navigation logs, ONC charts and an intimate knowledge of the country 
In addition to the often unserviceable navigational aids and poor weather information, which was rife in those days. But like most pilots, I adapted, using my significant experience and not taking unnecessary risks. My sixth sense and gut feelings, whilst not an accepted form of operation, often served me well in those days in keeping me aloft and my passengers and crew alive. Part of my job in the early days was courting new customers. Whilst the commercial team sold them a service, it was the flight team's job to make sure they enjoyed the flying and the aircraft that we had to offer. This often took the form of me and my senior co-pilots ferrying CEOs and commercial managers to locations such as Abuja in the north and Port Harcourt in the east of the country. Additionally, we made many crew trips to Escravos, where our helicopter operations were based. Many of the trips we carried out were to support the oil industry and consisted of crew changes, often out of the country. A favourite destination was Luanda in Angola and further offshore to Malabo. Malabo is the capital of Equatorial Guinea. It is located on the north coast of the island of Bioko. In the 90s, it consisted of a small paved airport with one or two makeshift hangars and airport buildings. Spanish was the predominant language and English was rarely spoken. Landing, offloading your passengers and attempting to pay the landing fee was a struggle. It's now grown into the Malabo International Airport, which now serves long-distance direct flights to Europe and some African capitals. That's a far cry from the early days. Still, it was a short flight for us from Calabar in the east of Nigeria, our launching point for most crew changes. With my flight case stuffed full of dollars, British pounds and local Nigerian currency, we used a rudimentary process to navigate our way through the tons of red tape, immigration, export and security in order to make these flights happen. No luxury supporting staff for us. Oh no, it was just myself and the first officer who navigated the ever-changing requirements for a successful crew change. Most of our crew changes consisted of dry, Uh, no-alcohol passengers transiting back to Lagos for onward international flights to Europe and beyond. After a few false starts where I mistakenly thought that they could control their drinking, having been dry for a number of months out on the rigs, I was usually only stocked with soft drinks on the aircraft. But for the first few flights, we had to deal with more than our fair share of rapidly intoxicated passengers drunkenly moving about the aircraft and trying to open the doors, amongst other things. Another intoxicated passenger favourite was to thrust their bodies into the cockpit to engage us in drunken banter whilst trying to throw their flailing limbs around our shoulders. The inner Enid wanted to say to the co-pilot, you hold him and I'll punch him. However, the rational professional chief pilot and me would gently hand over control of the aircraft to the co-pilot, whilst I tried to reason with an unreasonable, drunken individual by threatening to throw him physically out of the aircraft from 32,000 feet if he didn't behave. 
quite apart from the fact that it would have been impossible, it at least served to get their attention and encourage them to fasten their seatbelts a little tighter to guard against just such an action. For the rest of the flight, they often fell asleep and were remarkably sheepish and sober as we touched down in Lagos. And as they exited the aircraft, often apologetic for their behaviour. As we expanded our fleet and the aircraft got bigger, I would always carry restraints, just in case. For the first couple of years, we grew fast and took on several additional crew. I was tasked now with their training and recurrency checks in addition to my normal flight schedule. There were several different aircraft on our ramp now, business jets and the Cessna Grand Caravan amphibian aircraft. Our managing pilot for the Cessna amphibian fleet was a wonderful and capable American pilot who had tons of experience in bush flying out in Alaska. I enjoyed his company and his stories and would as often as I could join him on some of his flights down to Port Harcourt, out into the bush, landing on some of the many creeks in the area. My first few flights with him was an education. The Cessna Grand Caravan was a powerful single-engine turboprop 14-seater aircraft designed for rugged and challenging environments, amongst other things. Nothing more challenging than a flight out over the myriad of creeks which snaked their way around the River Delta area in the east. This was at the heart of the oil industry, and dare I say it, at the wrong end of conservation and the environment. Giant pipelines crisscrossed their way through, over and under the land, crashing through communities and villages decimated by oil industry greed. Communities in the Niger Delta have been affected by air and water pollution for years. The Niger Delta region encompasses about 8% of Nigeria's landmass and is the largest wetlands region on the African continent. From above, it all looks tranquil, but as you get closer, the reason becomes astoundingly clear. The area has been decimated by oil spills, and as we came in to land, the surface was heavily contaminated with oil and petroleum products. As I climbed out of the aircraft and onto the jetty, the floats were covered in oil. There was no easy way to experience the obvious devastation. For so long, I'd simply flown above it all. Now, I'd had an education. And it was a hard lesson to learn. Thank you for listening. As always, your reviews and comments are very much appreciated. Thank you to Lucy Ashby for the editing of this episode. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please do so on our social media sites. We're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Or send us an email. Our email address is theskyispinkpilot at gmail.com or visit our website www.skyispink.co.uk In the next episode, I struggle with my country's oil-producing greed and the devastation to the environment. I have several challenging charter flights to endure and I nearly lose my life for sticking to my principles and saying no. Thank you and goodbye.
check out Print My Tops by visiting www.printmytops.co.uk for a family-run t-shirt printing business specialising in quirky, fun t-shirt designs, as well as bespoke custom printing for workwear and birthdays. They also have a great range of personalised gift ideas. They are the top for tops. Follow them on Instagram or Facebook at Print My Tops and add coupon code PINKSKY to your order to receive a free personalised pencil case with your name on it. Don't forget, Print My Tops is the exclusive provider for the Pink Sky podcast merchandise. Visit them online at www.printmytops.co.uk.